right, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. It is great to see all of you, and I know a bunch of you are watching online right now, so thank you for being here. If you're traveling somewhere this weekend, we're glad that you are joining us, and thanks to those of you who are in the room and up in the balcony. Uh, We are glad you're here worshiping God with us together. It's a great time of worship today. We just finished worshiping God through our singing, and we're going to worship God now by studying His Word. Before we do that, I want to make sure if you are new here, you know who I am. My name is Adam. I'm the senior pastor here at First Free Church, and I would love to connect with you, so if you want to... To let us know that you are new here, uh, text CONNECT to the number that's on the screen right now, or go to efree.org slash connect. Let us know who you are. We'd love to answer your questions and get you plugged into the church. I want to warn you, today is going to be a very different kind of message. Usually, we try to have a nice balance of preaching and teaching, and, and both of those can be really helpful. Today is going to be mostly teaching. I'm not going to be preaching at you in this message much. It's not really the kind of passage that lends itself to that. It's also going to feel a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. There's going to be a lot of content that we're going to cover today. It's important. It's good, but it is a lot. We're going to look at one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, And apply what we learned last week, which I hope you've watched the message from last week or were here last week. We're going to apply what we learned that week about the biblical principles interpretation and apply that this week to this week's passage to find out what this text means. There are a lot of different theories about what the passage we're about to read means. And over the last couple of years, the elders, which includes me, have been doing a deep dive into what does this text mean and what do a lot of the concepts that it brings up mean, not only in the Bible, but also for our church. And so we have been studying and praying and deliberating and and doing a ton of research, seeking God's guidance into what would he want us to do with the passage we are about to look at. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you want to turn there, this is where we're at in the First Timothy series right now. So today's message is going to be about this particular passage. But there are a lot of concepts that this passage brings up, which are, are going to bring up a lot of questions. And we're not going to be able to get to all of those questions today. I'll tell you more about how you can get answers to those questions a little bit later. But if you're there in First Timothy chapter 2, I want you to go ahead and have a chance to look at this passage. And then we're going to pray and we're going to dig into it together. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, women should learn quietly and submissively. Nobody say amen. It's just, it's in the Bible. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Did you have to say it again, Paul? For God made Adam first... And afterward, he made Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. Aren't you glad you came to church today? This is, this is going to be so fun. But it's in the Bible. It's in God's word. What do we do with it? We better start with prayer. So if you would bow your heads with me, we're going to pray. God, would you give us wisdom as we look at this very challenging passage together, Lord? We want to know what you have to say about it, what you want to teach us about it. And so would you please give us just an incredible amount of wisdom together as we study this, Lord? Help us to understand what it meant to the original audience, um, what it means to us today, how to apply this to our church today, God. We trust you to guide us through all of this. And in your name we pray, amen. 
Now, I debated whether or not to split this message into two because there's just so much stuff here. But the problem is every time I thought about doing that, what I would talk about the first week and what I would talk about the second week were so intertwined that it wouldn't work to have a week between them. You would, you would need a complete refresher on everything I did in the first week just to get into the second week. And there's no guarantee that everybody's going to watch the first week right before they come to hear the second week, right? So we're going to try to do this all in one message. And that means it's going to feel a little bit crammed. It's going to feel like there's a lot of information here. And you're going to have a lot of questions that don't get answered. And unfortunately, that's, that's just the way it is. However, we do have something for you that's going to help with that. We have a position paper that we are releasing today, which goes into much more detail about everything. So we're not going to leave you high and dry with what we talked about today. We're going to cover the message on these couple of verses, but then there's a lot more out there to be talked about, and it is in the position paper, which we'll talk about later today. And that, so that's very important to understand. And this paper will cover not only this passage, but many other related passages of Scripture, as well as certain key individuals like Priscilla and Phoebe and Deborah and Junia and more in there. It's well over 30 pages long, but I would highly encourage all of you to go read it. We'll tell you more about that later. For today, how can we best understand 1 Timothy 2 8 through 14. Was this just meant for the Ephesian church? Or was this for all believers? Is this just for people in the first century? Or is this applicable as well today? This is a passage that really wasn't that challenging throughout most of church history. It wasn't a very controversial passage throughout most of church history. It's only recently that it has become much more challenging because of changes in our culture today. And some of those changes have been really good. I mean, throughout history... Oftentimes, men have gained positions of power, and they've used those positions of power to mistreat and abuse and treat as lesser than and keep rights from women. And that was never God's design. That's not how he set up the world to operate at all. But because of the fallen nature of people, that is what has often happened. And so fairly recently in more westernized societies, you have seen a tremendous move toward fairness and equality and justice that is a really wonderful positive thing. And there are many ways we can celebrate that and say, hey, that's actually closer to the way God designed this to work. But it does raise some interesting questions for us because of the culture that we're in today. Questions like, are gender distinctions just a relic from the past? And if you've been paying any attention at all to the news, you know that is a question that is being asked today all over the place. I mean, it's not enough to just say, let's make sure that we have equal rights. We need to then go further and ask further questions about, well, does this mean there's any difference between the genders at all? And you certainly see this in our culture today. You've got people arguing that there are no real differences between men and women. In fact, that men can be women and women can be men. You can have a, a man who is pregnant, but they're, but they're a man, trust me. And so we have this issue going on where we're wrestling with, are there any gender distinctions? And is there any real differences? Are there really biological differences between men and women has even been called into question by some people. And so gender should be this fluid thing that's swappable and replaceable and there's a spectrum and it should be open for a lot of experimentation. That's, the, that's not the topic for today, but that's the culture that we live in that certainly raises an interesting question, which is when we see gender distinctions in the word of God, do we throw those out? because we're in a different culture today? It's a valid question. Now, just before we go any further, I want to establish what is our foundation for what we believe here? Uh, because you, you're welcome to disagree with us on a lot of things, uh, but you've got to know where we're coming from. You've got to know why we believe what we believe, and it all comes from the word of God. In fact, this is in our statement of faith. 
It says, we believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation. And the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. This means that we will follow God's word even when it contradicts the prevailing cultural whims of the day. Even when it gets us into trouble. Even when it's uncomfortable. Even when it hurts us. Even when we don't understand it. And it doesn't make sense to us. We will still follow God's word. Someone asked me recently, what would we do if the government suddenly shut our church operation here down? Or insisted, made it illegal for us not to do things that were contrary to scripture. Required us to do things that would go against the word of God. And my answer to that is, we would go underground. We wouldn't stop being a church. We wouldn't shut down in the sense that we wouldn't be a church anymore. We just wouldn't meet at a building if that wasn't possible anymore. We would do what churches did before they had church buildings. We'd still be a church. And, and we would meet in homes and, and we would be a body of Christ together and, and I would still be a pastor and I would take another job if I needed to. But it wouldn't stop us from being the church, the body of Christ together. We, we've gotten so used to the way we do things in the building and we come on Sunday and all this that we've forgotten. That's not what church is really all about. And if for some reason the government or anything else were to tell us, hey, you can't follow the word of God anymore, we'd say, well, thank you very much, but we're going to follow the word of God even if it gets us into trouble. So you have to know that is our foundation. That is our baseline. That is how seriously we take this belief that the Bible is our ultimate authority to be trusted, believed, and obeyed in all that it says. But that means we have to understand it. We have to understand what it teaches and what it says. And that brings us to the four principles for biblical interpretation we talked about last time. And I'm sure you all remember what those are. But just in case, I'm going to put them on the screen for you. They were consider the context, the original language, other similar passages in scripture, and what is the principle and what is the expression of the principle. We're going to talk about the first one here, the context. I've got three points of context that I want to share with you. There's more, but for the sake of time, we're just going to cover three of the most important ones. The first one is that the context here in 1 Timothy is worship gatherings. The context is worship gatherings. Paul says, in every place of worship, that's the context. In every place of worship, from 1 Timothy 2.8. And then everything that follows is within that context of, this is the setting of the worship place. This is the worship gathering. In other words, Paul's restrictions here have nothing to do with politics. They have nothing to do with education. They have nothing to do with business. And those that have tried to use this passage to place restrictions and limitations on women outside of the church setting are using this passage out of its context. That's why context matters so much. This is specific to worship gatherings. It is not for those other places. The second context I want to give you, and this may or may not be something you've heard of, but it's one of the biggest um, viewpoints that comes up whenever you talk about 1 Timothy 2 is that the cult of Artemis had virtually nothing to do with this instruction. This is a very common uh, belief that is out there. It was virtually unknown um, until a few decades ago when, when a couple people wrote a, a book, uh, a, a history book that, that contained this idea in it, that maybe the reason Paul gave the instruction he did to the church in Ephesus is because there was this cult of Artemis or Diana, 
And in the cult of Artemis, which was a big deal in Ephesus, they had a huge temple to it. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And in this cult, because it was led by women, maybe what was happening was those women were infiltrating the early church. They were taking positions of leadership. They were introducing pagan practices. And that's why Paul gives this restriction. Now, we looked into this very, very closely and and, and tried as hard as we could to find a shred of evidence that this was the case. And to my great astonishment, we could find absolutely nothing but the opposite. Uh, It does not seem that there is any historical support for this idea of the cult of Artemis being led by women whatsoever, which is very confusing because so many people just assume that it is true when they're looking into this issue. And the first people that promoted this theory uh, did so claiming that they had historical evidence and, their his- and they hadn't actually looked at any of the historical evidence from first century Ephesus, which was just astonishing to me. Now, there's way more in the paper and there are multiple reasons why this cannot be true. But I'm just going to give you the easiest one, which is there are about 6,000 inscriptions that we have from ancient Ephesus. Those inscriptions tell us exactly how the cult functioned. It tells us who was in charge. It tells us how the leadership structure worked. It tells us titles, names, job descriptions, you name it. We have a ton of information about the cult of Artemis. And I didn't realize this before I started looking into this. Here's what we learned. The cult of Artemis was led entirely by men. The priests, who are lower on the totem pole, actually, were overwhelmingly men. There were a few women priests, but the women priests were typically young women whose parents paid a good amount of money for them to go serve in the temple. And we know this because all the inscriptions say something like, here's this girl. She came and she served at the temple for one year. Her parents gave the appropriate amount of money as specified by the leaders of the temple to come do this. And then we returned her to her family to be married. And so that's most of the the women priests in this. And the priests were by far overwhelmingly men. The cult was overseen by a group of older men known as the Jerusia. And the Jerusia, it's a fantastic name. It literally means old men's society. So the cult was, was overseen by the old men's society. This was made up of about 350 men from the leading families in Ephesus and the region that oversaw activities in the cult. There was another group in the cult that had more day-to-day operations, and that was a, a group of people called the Corets, and there were, there were fewer of them, six to nine at a time, um, but the Corets literally means young men's group. So the old men's group had oversight, the young men's group oversaw operations, and the young men's group, many of those men also served on the city council, which was also exclusively male. Now, ultimate authority over the cult fell to the civil magistrates of the area, and this is because the cult of Artemis was a tourist trap. It was a money-making enterprise. You know, it wasn't just a a religion thing. No, no, no. The the merchants and so much of the economy in Ephesus was based around selling your little touristy items and your your little idols and things like that that had some connection to the temple. And this drew people from all around. This was one of the 10 largest cities in the world. This was, at the time, I believe the largest building in the world was this temple. It drew in all these people. That's why in the Bible you see the merchants get upset because so many people are converting to Christianity. They're afraid they aren't going to buy their temple trinkets anymore. So this was a money-making operation, and that meant that the civil magistrates actually oversaw the temple, and the civil magistrates were 100% male. So I was blown away to learn this, because I have so frequently heard the myth that the cult of Artemis was led by women, and this is why Paul gave the instructions that he said it, honestly... It just, it just blew me away to see that there was not only not a shred of evidence that that was true, but so much evidence to the contrary. It's almost like the people promoting it have not bothered to look at the history 
at all. It just shocked me. And to be honest with you, it disappointed me. It really disappointed me to learn this because I would absolutely love to be able to say, hey, here's why Paul said this. And it was specific to that culture and that place and that context. And because we know this had to do with this cult of Artemis, it's easy to say, no, that doesn't apply because that's unique to this place. It only happens here. That would be awesome. Because I'll be honest with you, this passage does not make sense to me. I don't understand it. I don't understand why. It it feels like a, a relic of a bygone era. I mean, why would this still be something in Scripture that we would have to hold to in any way? And so it's confusing. It would be really, really nice if we could point to the cult of Artemis and say, see, this is the context that makes this not apply. But at least in this instance here, the cult of Artemis has absolutely nothing to do with with women being in leadership at all. In fact, just the opposite is true. So let's move on from that and talk about the third piece of context. We've got a lot more to get to today. The third piece of context is that the rest of Scripture actually tells a very consistent story. It would be nice if we could just take this passage and say that's isolated, that's just for Ephesus, but we actually see a a theme through all of Scripture that matches what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 2 very, very well. Let me just give you a, a brief flyover. Paul was a rabbi. Paul knew the Old Testament scriptures very, very well. The the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, the account of the origin of of man, of Adam and Eve. Timothy was a, a Jewish boy. His mother and grandmother taught him the scriptures. He knew the scriptures well. So Paul, a Jewish rabbi, is writing to Timothy, a well learned Jewish man who understands these well. And when he shares this principle that we read earlier, he gives a reason for it. He gives the rationale. And the rationale is this. For... This is why, well, that's a goofy looking circle. There we go. For, here's why I'm telling you this, Timothy. For God made Adam first. And afterward, he made Eve. Oh, there's something to that. There's something to the order there. There's something in that as that's the rationale here. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. So Paul makes his rationale fairly clear here, that God has has something to do with this. There is something in the design and the created order that Adam's created first and Eve's created second. And why would that have any impact here, Paul? Why does that make a difference here? Let's look into it a little bit, because Paul and Timothy would have understood this better than your average Christian today. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Here's what we read. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now remember, Paul said, that the reason for his principle, or one of the reasons for his principle about church teaching and leadership was that Adam was made first. Somehow that's what it's there for. And you actually see this consistently all throughout Scripture. There is a significance to the firstborn. And it predates the fall. This is before the fall. This is before sin entered the world. God has placed some special uh, uh, emphasis, responsibility, on the one who comes first, having an extra responsibility. 
If you look even more closely at the Genesis account, you can see more of this. God made the man first. He gave him these instructions. There were four things here he was supposed to do. Did you catch the four things? He's supposed to tend the garden. He's supposed to watch over the garden. He's able to eat from the fruit of every tree in the garden, which literally means feast. So God is saying, feast yourself. Enjoy. This is my command. Enjoy everything I've created for you to eat, except that one thing. There's that one thing you can't do. You can't eat from that fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. Why not? That's the one that's off limits. Is there something bad with it? Is it poison? That's the one that if you eat it, bad things are going to happen to you. Don't eat it. Those four things were the mission that God gave to Adam. Tend, watch over, eat whatever you want, except that one thing. That's off limits. Then, after God gave the instructions to Adam, he did this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So God, after giving Adam instructions, says, I'm going to make a helper who is a great fit, who is just right. Literally, the the word that's used there for helper is Eitzer. And there's been a lot of controversy around Eitzer. There doesn't really need to be, to be honest with you. Eitzer is used of God. To describe him as a helper. It's there, uh, we think of helpers sometimes as like a, 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 someone that's less than or an assistant. That's not the Hebrew idea here at all. Uh, don't think of helper in the English sense of, well, they're just kind of your assistant. No, 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 no. This is a partner who is equal to, but is, is able to come alongside and help in the mission. Uh, and, but this is used of God as well when he's helping Israel. Many times, we'll just show you one example here. Uh, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help, my Eitzer comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Eitzer does not communicate any kind of inferiority or, or any kind of superiority. It just means someone who comes alongside. The actual text in Genesis is Eitzer Connecto, which means a helper who is opposite the man. That's literally what it means. A helper who is opposite the man or a helpmeet that is the perfect fit for him. Has nothing to do with inferiority, superiority, none of that. It was someone who was there to help him in the mission. The two of them would go on mission together. The mission that was given to the man, Adam, already. And what was the mission? Tend the garden, watch over the garden, eat all the fruit except for that one tree. That was what they were supposed to do. Adam was supposed to pass those instructions along to Eve. God gave the instructions to Adam specifically, then created Eve. And both Eve and God give us clues that Eve was getting those instructions passed on from Adam. When the serpent tempted Eve in the garden and Eve responded, here is how she described God's instructions. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, now listen carefully here. God said, you must not eat it, yes, or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, is that what God said? That is not what God said. God said, don't eat it. But now we have something new that's been added here. Now, is it that Adam gave her the wrong instructions? Did Adam say, here's what God said, don't eat it and don't touch it? No, because there was no sin yet, and that would have been a lie. And Adam was a pretty sharp dude. He didn't have time for, you know, degradation of the mind to cause him to forget stuff or anything like that. Probably what happened is Adam gave the instructions, and then he added a bunch of his own. God said, we are not to eat this, and we shouldn't go near it. We shouldn't touch it. Uh, We need to keep a 50 foot radius around this thing. Like it's got a restraining order. We are not going anywhere near that tree. And Eve probably misunderstood that to mean, well, God must have said those things. Something like that had to have happened because um, Adam certainly did not lie to Eve about the instructions. And I don't think that the first two humans God created were really stupid or had bad memories. I think it probably just got lost in translation. 
So it was a misunderstanding that Eve had. And it shows that Adam was the one who passed on the instructions to her. She did not get them directly from God, or else presumably she would not have said, he said, do not even touch it, because that's not what God said. After they sinned, we see God emphasize the same sort of thing. In Genesis 3, 9, God comes looking for Adam and holds Adam responsible for the failure to follow his instructions. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. These are going to be important later. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? This is the charge that God has to Adam, and he's using pronouns that are all in the masculine singular. He is talking directly to Adam and saying, Adam, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? This is not plural. He's not talking to Eve here. He's talking directly to Adam and saying, I gave you these instructions. Have you failed to keep them? When God talks to Eve next, he changes the question. He does not say, I gave you these instructions. Have you failed them? He says simply, what have you done? And the you there is in the feminine singular. So he talks directly to Adam and says, I gave you these instructions. I'm holding you accountable for them. He talks to Eve and says, what have you done? And then she blames the serpent. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. See, Adam was the one responsible for receiving the instructions from God and for leading his wife in following God's commands, really for leading humanity in following God's commands. Not because she was inferior in any way or lesser than, just because it was a responsibility that was placed on him by God as the first one created. This theme continues in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Hold up a minute. I thought it was Eve that sinned first. Wouldn't her sin be the, as the first sin, be the one that brought sin into the human race? No, because Adam was responsible. Adam was considered the one responsible for the instructions, and it was his sin that brought death to everyone. And do you think I enjoy that fact? My name is Adam. <laughs> you have any idea hearing messages on this growing up and knowing that somehow I'm connected to this guy that did all, had made all this mess? Uh, this, is, this is an issue of responsibility that Adam has that Eve does not have. She wasn't responsible for anyone else. She wasn't responsible to be the messenger of the instructions God gave. Adam was the one responsible. Adam was the one God held responsible. And so Paul tells Timothy, here's a principle. Here's a reason for the principle. God has designed it to work this way from the beginning, even before the fall. He says Adam was made first, not Eve. Eve was made afterward. And Adam wasn't deceived. He sinned knowing exactly what he was doing. And he was responsible for it. Now fast forward a little bit to Judaism. God's people that he sets up a structure for and gives them very specific instructions. And he establishes this role for the priests who are going to be the spiritual leaders of his people. And represent the people to God and him to the people. And he has this role of priest that is specifically reserved for men. There were no women priests in ancient Judaism. Women served in all sorts of ways as prophets and as judges and as civil leaders and as great godly women doing all sorts of influential things and had a huge impact on, on everything from the nation of Israel and leading the nation in different ways to the, the lineage of Jesus and just some incredible things women did. But not one woman served as a spiritual leader in the priesthood that God set up in ancient Judaism. When Jesus gets to the scene, 
He welcomes women to be his disciples and learn alongside the men. He breaks down this barrier of discipleship where it was considered that women aren't supposed to sit at the feet of rabbis and be their disciples. That's for the men. And, and Mary comes along and she sits down with Jesus and her sister Martha gets after her and Jesus rebukes Martha and says, hey, she's chosen the better thing. She wants to be my disciple. She wants to learn. Don't stop her from doing that. She doesn't have to go work in the kitchen like you, Martha. If you want to do that, whatever. But she's chosen something way better to sit here and learn from me and be my disciple. And so Jesus broke down that cultural barrier that existed that was not a barrier God created. And yet, when Jesus went to form the leadership structure of his new movement, the church, he selected only men to be his apostles. And not all educated men, by the way. This has nothing to do with education. He selected 12 men to be his apostles. He could have broken down the spiritual leadership barrier just like he did the discipleship barrier, but he didn't. In effect, what he was saying was, you have limited women in ways you should not have. But I still reserve a leadership role designed for men. That's what Jesus was doing. And when you understand the big picture of the historical context and the Ephesian cultural context and the context that's right there in the text of 1 Timothy, it starts to become clear that this is a consistent concept throughout all of Scripture. This was not unique to Ephesus. In fact, it's consistent with what Paul told the church in Corinth. He gave them some very similar instructions. And the church in Crete in the letters to Titus. And all the other documentation from the early church that we see. It all consistently tells this story that there is something to this idea that God has reserved some kind of leadership role in the church specifically for men. So we've considered the context historically and culturally and textually. Let's talk a little bit about the original languages here. That's number two. Consider the original language. First Timothy was written in Greek. And there are two Greek words that always come up when we talk about this passage. The word for teach And the word for authority, let's look at them here in the text. Paul says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. The word for teach here is the word didasco. And it does mean to teach, but we sometimes get confused because our English words have connotations and meanings that the Greek and Hebrew words didn't necessarily have. There are nuances there that we don't always understand right off the bat. And so we here teach, we might think any kind of public speaking. That is not what Paul is talking about here. The kind of teaching you have in mind with a word like didasco is instructive. It is not just, here's some information. It is, you need to do this. You need to believe this. There is, there is some authority behind this, some force behind this. Later on in the letter, Paul says, teach these things and insist that everyone learned them. There's a forcefulness behind this teaching. It's the same word there. And a couple chapters later, he says, teach these things, same word, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. There is a forcefulness to this, that this is teaching that is to be obeyed with some level of spiritual authority. And it's important to understand that Paul is not talking about any kind of speech or any kind of speaking. It's not praying or facilitating or sharing or explaining. It's spiritually authoritative teaching that is in mind here. It's the difference between me standing up here and saying, hey, here's something amazing God showed me in his word this week. And saying, this is what God's word says. And this is what you need to believe. And this is what you need to do about it. See, one is informative, but one is instructive. And there's a big difference there. And we have to understand that to understand what Paul is talking about here. Don't let our English understanding of the word teach make you think this is all public speaking. 
We'll, we'll go into that more a little bit later. First, let's talk about the, the second word, which is authority. Or in the Greek here, it is authentane. It's a unique word, which has caused a, a little bit of confusion around what it actually means. And we could talk about this for a really long time, but I'm just going to direct you to the position paper when we're all done to get more information about that. What I'll say today is that authority here does not mean the inappropriate taking of authority, as has sometimes been suggested. It is not in a negative sense. The word authentane is most closely linked to the word master. Some have suggested, well, authentane, it's kind of like this word over here for murder. So maybe it means a bad kind of authority. And Paul's not restricting women being authority. He's restricting them being bad authorities. And so that's been the, the theory that's been proposed out there. But the word authentane does not connect to the word murder. It connects to the word master, which has a neutral connotation. There's no default negativity to it. It can be someone who's an authority is good or someone who's authority who's bad. It's just neutral. One of the reasons why this has become so confusing for people is because some of the older translations interpreted authentane as usurp authority or assume authority. The problem is when those translations were written, those words, usurp and assume, did not necessarily have a negative connotation to them. So even the translators of the NIV have said, the reason we chose the word assume is because it is neutral, just like the Greek. It's neutral. It doesn't automatically carry a negative connotation. But many a blogger has taken that translation and said, ah, assume authority, that sounds negative to me. This must be the negative taking of authority. And that is not what is used here. In fact, if you really dig into the Greek, and this is the last thing I'll say about this because it's just getting deeper and deeper. If you really get into the Greek here, the way the sentence is constructed, if teaching is viewed in a positive sense, and it is in the context, it's good teaching, uh, not false teaching because there's another word for that, then authority must also be viewed in a positive sense. It cannot be a negative, uh, inappropriate taking of authority that, that was wrongful. It cannot be that way the way the sentence is constructed. There are 42 instances in scripture that have the same construction of this kind of thing where you've got two things that are viewed positively but are in some way limited or restricted. Let me give you a couple examples to explain this, otherwise it won't make sense. In Matthew 6, 26, Jesus says, look at the birds, they don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. This is the same construction, it's the same word, ude, that's used in the middle. Planting and harvesting is not a negative thing. In this context that Jesus is talking about, it's clear that planting and harvest are viewed as good things. They produce food. And yet he's saying the birds don't do that. And so it is something that they don't do, but both of these things are positive. It would not make sense for either of these to be negative. They both have to be positive for the sentence structure to work. There's another example we could talk about in Romans 14, where Paul says it is better not to eat meat or drink wine. And there's that word again, ude, in the middle. Eat meat or drink wine. Both positive things from the context. Neither one is negative. Uh, it wouldn't make sense in the sentence structure for either of these to be viewed in a negative sense as an inappropriate thing. Um, Paul is showing an example of two good things that you might not want to do if it causes someone to stumble. Does that make sense? And, and that's how we know from looking at this sentence structure and these other times in scripture that it's used that teaching and authority are both viewed in the positive sense here in Paul's writing. These two concepts that are restricted in some way, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but they're not viewed as a negative thing that is restricted. So Paul is talking here about spiritually instructive teaching. He's talking about spiritual authority in the church, in every place of worship, at least in a neutral or positive sense, not in a negative sense, not taking over things inappropriately. And then let's look at the third biblical principle for interpretation, which is consider other similar passages 
in Scripture. There are many we could go to, and the paper outlines most of them, if not all of them. But there are just a few things I want to point out to you today that help our understanding of this text. We can know for certain that Paul's principle about teaching and authority, whatever it means, does not mean women cannot say anything or be involved in church services. We absolutely know that for a fact. Because if you compare to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see that Paul talks about and affirms women praying and prophesying in the worship services. So it is, it is absolutely clear that the extreme example that is sometimes given, the extreme interpretation that is sometimes taken from 1 Timothy 2, that women should not be involved at all, and I'm not even sure if women should be up on stage leading worship, or if they should be praying on stage, or if they're going to pray in our class, we've got to have a husband up there with her. All of that stuff is very much outside of what Paul is saying to the church. And we know that when we compare it to other passages in Scripture. And see, oh, Paul was absolutely fine with women praying and prophesying in the church. So this cannot mean all speaking is off limits. There's something unique about that word didasco that is different than all public speaking, as we mentioned earlier. We can also look at 1 Timothy 3, which we'll study over the next couple of weeks. Paul makes it clear that the elders of the church, when we compare to this scripture, are to be men. And not only because he uses male pronouns for all of the descriptions, that's a part of it, all that alone wouldn't necessarily be enough, because sometimes the pronouns can be used generically, although in this case the context makes it pretty clear that it is men specifically. But one of the requirements itself literally says the husband of one wife, or a one woman man. And so Paul's message to Timothy for the church in Ephesus is, your elders are supposed to be men. And there's no ambiguity there. In Titus, he says the exact same thing to the church in Crete. The elders are supposed to be male, the husband of one wife. And he adds a few verses later, by the way, older women are to didasco. Older women are to teach with spiritual authority to the younger women. And so when you see that in there, that highlights even more the distinction there that Paul is saying, hey, I want your elders to be men, the husband of one wife. And I want your older women to teach spiritually authoritative things to the younger women. There is a specific role that is given there, and that is the exact same word, didasco, that is used. And so when we look at all of this context here, and we look at what Paul said to the churches in Crete and Corinth and Ephesus and all these letters from Paul were passed around to all the different churches. In fact, Peter, Peter talks about how these different churches all around were, were sharing Paul's letters and trying to understand what they meant. And even he says sometimes they're a little difficult to understand, which helps me sometimes. When I read Paul and go, man, Paul, what were you getting at here? And then I go to 2 Peter where he says, some of the things Paul wrote were really hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate that. I needed that today. But Paul says things in his letters like, we teach these things to all the churches. All our churches have these same practices. It does not appear at all that this was unique to Ephesus. This was all the churches. What about all of the examples of women in scripture, other passages, we're still comparing to other passages, who were leaders. And this is one of the most common things that gets thrown out there. What about Priscilla? What about Phoebe? What about Junia? What about Deborah? And all of them are covered in the position paper. So I encourage you to read that. But let me just look at one briefly, and that is Priscilla. Priscilla was a a godly woman was married to Aquila. Both of them were believers. Both of them traveled with Paul, learned from Paul about Jesus and following Jesus better. They learned their theology. 
Some people have made a big deal about the fact that Priscilla is sometimes mentioned first in Scripture. And there may be something to that, just the fact that she might have been the more extroverted of the two or the, the one that people think of when they think of that power ministry couple, Priscilla and Aquila. It's like, well, she's the one that comes to mind first. And there are people in our church who, when I think about them, godly couple, wonderful people. Um, and I might think of the wife first because she's just more involved in things or, you know, more outspoken or, or extroverted or whatever, you know. And so there's no reason to conclude anything beyond that. Sometimes in the Bible, Aquila is mentioned first. So we should not make too much about the fact that Priscilla's name comes first in some of uh, the references in Scripture. But, it's, and it certainly does not mean that Priscilla was somehow the leader of the home or was somehow a pastor as has sometimes been theorized. Priscilla and Aquila settled in Ephesus where Timothy was. They, had, they hosted a church in their home. And hosting a church also does not mean that they were the pastors of that church, as has sometimes been said. They just hosted a church in their home. There's nothing more we know beyond that. But here's what happens after they settle in Ephesus. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught, that is our magic word, didasco, others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. So here's this guy, great guy, loves Jesus, doesn't have all the information. He's going out there in the synagogue and he's telling everybody he can about Jesus, but all he knows is what he's gotten from John. He doesn't know the updated stuff about Jesus and and, uh, about Paul and what Paul would have to teach him. And so what happens when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Now, just a couple quick points here. Apollos was teaching, didasco. Priscilla and Aquila explained, ectothemi. Didasco and ectothemi are two different concepts, and they're used differently in Scripture. Didasco is more of an instruction that is given from an authority to someone who is supposed to follow. And ectothemi is more of a, I'm sharing some information with you. I'm explaining it to you. I'm not assuming that you are going to have to do what I say or believe what I say. I'm just sharing with you. And that is what Priscilla and Aquila did privately with Apollos. They did not have any spiritual authority over Apollos. They simply shared information he did not have. He knew of John's baptism, not what Paul was teaching about Jesus. And so they filled him in and he accepted it. But there was no authority there. And it wasn't in a worship gathering. And it wasn't didasco. It was ectothemi. Priscilla did not teach Apollos. In the same way that Apollos taught other believers. Or the way Paul wrote about teaching in 1 Timothy. Now it's worth noting that Paul wrote these instructions about teaching and authority. While Priscilla and Aquila were hosting a church group in their home in Ephesus. So if the argument is that no women were educated enough or spiritually mature enough to lead a church, we have one example right here of a woman who is more than qualified. Priscilla was an amazing woman of God. And so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who oversees the church in Ephesus, and one of those subgroups in Ephesus is the home that meets in Aquila and Priscilla's house, and he gives these instructions knowing full well that Priscilla is there, one of the people hosting a church in her home. And so Paul gives these instructions even under those conditions. There's one more interpretive principle we need to cover, and that is to consider what is the principle and what is the expression of the principle. We talked about this last week. Could it be that this is like the the braided hair and the gold jewelry, and there's a, a cultural expression that we need to adapt to our day since times have changed? 
What is interesting here is that this passage actually does the opposite of what last week's passage did. Last week, we saw a principle, modesty and not drawing attention to yourself, followed by a culturally relevant expression, braided hair and gold and pearl jewelry that was specific for that time. But in this passage, we see a principle that there's a leadership role for instructive teaching and spiritual authority in the church that is reserved for men. And what follows is not a culturally relevant expression, but instead a rationale that grounds the principle in the design God built into this world for his people from the very beginning. And there are culturally relevant expressions as we change how we do church and and other things like that of how this plays out, but not from the principle Paul is talking about here. There is no cultural expression here that is unique. There is a principle that is grounded in how God designed his people to function. There's so much more we could say about this, but I need to go ahead and wrap up. And I still have two questions. I'll bet you have a lot of questions. I have two questions. Why would God design it this way? And what does this mean for first free? First, why would God design it this way? It just doesn't make sense to me. And I'm being honest with you. I'm not, I'm not uh, doing this for, for a speech effect. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And there is a section in this paper called, But Why? But why, God? And the short answer to that, without just reading the paper to you, is we don't really know. It's certainly not that men are always better teachers than women. We know that without a doubt. And it's certainly not that men are always better spiritual leaders than women. That is obviously not true as well. And we may not be able to fully understand this. The Bible says that God's ways are higher than our ways, that his thoughts are higher than ours. Why did God choose to make the man first and then use that as a part of his justification for principles ongoing? I don't know. Why did God make the fruit in the middle of the garden the one you're not supposed to touch? It's the one right there. We're seeing it no matter where we go. That's the tree we're not, not touch, eat. I said the wrong thing. We're not supposed to eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. But why? Why was it the fruit from the middle of the garden? Why not a river you couldn't cross? Or a hill you couldn't climb? Or an animal you couldn't pick up even though it was so fluffy? Like, why was it the fruit of the tree? That one tree? I don't know. I don't know. And Eve didn't know either. She was curious. What's this going to do? And Satan comes along and tempts her. And what does he say to her? Did God really say? That doesn't make sense. Are you sure he's not just trying to keep something good from you? It's your right to have that fruit. Something great is going to happen for you. Why would you limit yourself? You don't understand what God's saying here. Just take the fruit. And maybe this is something like that. I don't know. Maybe God's principle for Male leadership in the church is kind of like that, where we don't necessarily understand it, but God designed it that way. And one day we will be judged for how we followed God's commands, even when we didn't understand them. That's, that's the best answer I can give to why. What does this mean for first free? Well, when I got here a few years ago, and it's important for some people to know this because some know and some don't. When I got here a few years ago, there were some leaders in our church that were restricting women in a way that was not biblical or appropriate. And that gave some women the impression that our church was restricting women in ways God was not. And they were right. And it wasn't an official position of the church. It was the actions of a few leaders quietly limiting women who did not actually have the authority to do so, but they just did it. And these women came to me and other elders and said, hey, why is the church doing this? And we said, the church isn't doing this. 
What is going on? Because there was a lack of consistency, there was a lack of clarity around where is our position on this, and it took a tremendous amount of work to root out those and end those practices. And I want to be clear, we will not place limitations on women where God does not. And we welcome women to be involved, and women are involved in all sorts of things in ministry at First Free, to be engaged in ministry here by praying on stage and leading worship and serving communion and leading in ministries where they don't have spiritual authority over men, sharing testimonies, facilitating discussion, sharing what God has been teaching them, and of course, teaching with spiritual authority to other women and to children, which is very biblical. We can point directly to Scripture to support that. And we shouldn't miss the fact that Paul in this very text is saying, don't miss this, I want women to learn. I want women to be in there with the men learning. I don't want them to think this is just a man's thing. Women need to be learning this too. But we also recognize that God has established a teaching and authority role in his church that is reserved for men. And while it might make the world angry, we will follow what God's word says even if it doesn't make sense to us. And so elders at First Free Church will be qualified men. And those holding positions of spiritual authority or teaching instructively with spiritual authority over men will be qualified men. And all the specific details of that are in the position paper, which I would encourage you to read. And by the way, we're not going to criticize any church that has concluded differently. We may believe differently than them. We may think that they are technically wrong and that they need to study this issue more closely, but this is not a gospel issue. It's an important issue, but it's not a gospel issue. It's a secondary issue. It's a church practice issue. If it didn't have such an impact on how we function in the church, we would just put it in the conviction bucket and say, you believe this, that's fine. You believe this, that's fine. The problem is, and we have seen it here, that if a church, that a church will take a position on this either actively or passively, and there's no way around it. And if we are passive, the inconsistency creates confusion and frustration as different parts of the church operate differently. And some leaders make rules that are overly restrictive. And some women, and we have seen this, shrink back from ministry roles because they aren't sure if they will be criticized for pursuing them. And we have seen this here and we will not tolerate. It is putting restrictions on women that God did not. So we want to be clear. Because to be unclear is to be unkind. And and we sincerely hope that this message, and more so the paper, actually brings freedom. Freedom to know, here at First Free Church, what do we believe God's word says about where the lines are and where they are not. So that we know we can charge ahead together, in ministry together, and only be limited by limitations that we see in God's word. And can see clearly written in a position paper so we understand, okay, that's... What he's saying. I'm not saying it's an easy thing. I'm not saying there still aren't more questions. But our sincere hope and desire as an elder board, and I am one of the elders, is that this would provide tremendous clarity for our church moving forward. I want to invite our elder chair and vice chair to come up here right now and tell you a little bit more about this position paper. There's no other application for today other than to go and read the paper. So I encourage you to do that. You will probably have some questions after this message and maybe after reading the paper. So uh, if, if these guys don't answer your questions, I encourage you read that paper and then reach out to us and let us know. Doug. Good morning. Um, So uh, as groups of people, we tend to change over time. Uh, If we are collectively engaged in anything, whether it's a business or a a society or church, 
um, our methods, our opinions, our approach to how we, how we uh, deal with things, how we manage things changes over time. Um, and churches are no different. And so it's important, critically important actually, that we promote uh, God's word as the central source document of our faith and that we constantly dive into it, understand it, promote it, and then apply that, um, those teachings from God's word back to our lives personally and back to our lives corporately as we organize a church. Um, to understand, are we really staying true to God's calling and God's purpose in our lives? Are we staying true to the faith that God has called us to? And so this issue is um, uh, obviously one of those that's very central. It's very, very important. Um, and if you remember right, uh, right uh, Paul in his letters actually uh, chastises some churches in the early church about their drift in their theology already. So you can see it happened very fast, let alone 2,000 years later. It can happen very quickly that, that things make sense to us and we simply step a little bit of away and, and suddenly we find ourselves separated from where God called us to. So, um, so how we organize our church and ministries is a subject of wide and broad opinion. There's obviously a lot of ways to do it, and everyone has kind of a preference as to how they think it makes sense to, to organize. And so, um, so this is an issue that, um, that we have a lot of freedom in, but at the same time, Scripture gives us some guideposts. And when Scripture speaks and gives us a guidepost, we need to pay attention to that, and we need to understand what, what God is telling us here. So as Adam mentioned, two years ago, uh, several groups of uh, folks came to us and said, hey, we're encountering confusion, we're encountering problems. Uh, there are people who disagree inside the ministries as to whether, you know, can I do this or can I not? Someone's really mad at me because I spoke, you know, today in church or some things like that. And we realized we had a lot of inconsistency. And uh, to Adam's point, we wanted to create clarity, um, create uh, a freedom to interact and serve joyfully and productively in ministry. And so the elders took this very seriously and in, in, uh, embarked upon a long series of study. Um, to that end, um, this is not something, this issue is far more important for a casual study of the scripture, uh, to pull a couple of verses out, talk about it for a few meetings and make a decision. Um, this is uh, something where we, we really spent a long time. There was a year of concentrated scholarly effort on this. Uh, we delved into the Bible. At one point, um, uh, Adam had these uh, uh, scriptural um, software up in front of us with four languages simultaneously. So we're reading passages in four languages and understanding the exact translations, the exact um, uh, options and what some of the original Greek was intending and all that kind of stuff. So I learned more Greek actually than I really wanted to uh, in this process. Um, uh, we read deep theological um, treatises on this, Dallas Theological Seminary, Trinity Seminary, other major organizations that have spent years uh, really diving into this and understanding kind of what they had to say on it. And then, of course, obviously, we sought out the folks at the EFCA and understood what our denomination has, has uh, 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 how they've looked at this issue uh, themselves and the, the issues of where they, where they come down and where they, there's freedom and, and uh, for the local church to, to do things. So... Um, as a result, um, uh, most of the things that we, we came to really are consistent with prior practice at First Free. There wasn't a lot of things that we blew up. But to Adam's point, we found some things, some habits that we've developed over the 30 years this church has been around um, that, uh, um, that really were not actually at the line of where the Bible drew the line. We had somehow created some rules that were a little bit inside the lines. I guess uh, uh, the, the bumper strip, or however you call that, the rumble strip, um, versus the guardrail. And, um, and so there's some things we changed. We were able, particularly for women who have uh, spent, made, the, made the commitment to full-time vocational ministry, there were some things actually we could change to make that, that choice to be a vocational, in vocational ministry uh, much more rewarding and uh, to close some gaps uh, that, that we had had traditionally between uh, women and men who serve in ministerial roles here. So there's a lot of changes, I think, that are actually quite positive and quite clarifying. So um, 
The goal in all this, again, is greater clarity, greater understanding of how we participate in ministries together, how we organize our church, and in doing so, people can, can robustly step into ministry, joyfully and productively serve, and not bump into each other uh, along the way uh, and have, uh, I think, a better, better platform for this. Um, so I'm going to pass to Jeff. We'll talk a little bit about the paper itself, which we obviously encourage you all to do. Thank you. So what do we do with all of this? Uh, Adam mentioned in his service that, uh, in a sermon that, uh, about Priscilla and how she was so valued in ministry that people would refer to Priscilla and Aquila. Let me tell you, I'm, uh, I'm in one of those relationships. Uh, I'm married to Kathy, and it's Kathy and Jeff. And, um, and Kathy is a Priscilla. And her twin sister, Kim, is a Priscilla, and her younger sister, Carrie, is a Priscilla, uh, in that they're godly women uh, who lead well, who teach, or are women of integrity. And I tell you that just to say that, that I have a high view of women. They are not something less when it comes to ministry. There is great value. And I will tell you, when I look at the elder board and I see the eight men who are on the board, that is true of their wives as well. So um, we... Uh, recognize uh, the value. And, and, and I just want to say that because oftentimes when you have men talking about women's roles, I think it's, yeah, that's right. What do you know, buddy? You know, you're a guy. Um, but we do understand that. What you may not know is that Kathy and I have been married for 41 years. And the first 12 years we were involved in her home church, which had a very, very conservative view of women in ministry to the point that it really almost became a primary feature, a distinctive and a point of emphasis. And let me tell you that what we want you to see, what we want you to understand here, this is an emotional issue. There's a potential for divisiveness. We do not want that to be the case. This is not a primary issue. This is a secondary issue. The primary issues are those things that we have to agree on in order to have fellowship with one another and with other believers. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that salvation is through faith alone in Jesus. Those are the non-negotiables. There are other things that we hold dear, that we practice, that are secondary issues that we will have disagreement on, that we can have a relationship with other churches and with other believers on. That's what this is uh, about that we need to when we have those issues we need to respond to differences of opinion and differences of conviction with love and with grace and respect now i mentioned kathy and i grew up in that tradition in that respect we spent a lot of time studying this issue as a result and what i want to tell you you know in terms of this paper is please Take advantage of the fact that it has thousands of hours of, of, of study by other godly people. Uh, Doug mentioned the seminaries, the teachers. It's thousands of hours looking at scripture. It's an exhaustive approach that boils it down to 40 pages. And that sounds like a lot, just as everything you've been through this morning is a lot. But really, it's a scriptural approach it's a balanced approach, and I challenge you to take the time to go to the website and to read it, and to read it slowly and carefully. Read it with an open mind. Oftentimes when I'll look at something, I'll say, well, this is what my thought is. This is what my idea or conviction is, and I'll read something from that perspective, and I'll look for agreement or disagreement. 
Don't do that with this. Come to it with an open mind. Reread it. Prayerfully do so. And then remember that we will have differences of opinion because this is a secondary issue. Don't forget its purpose. It's to bring clarity. It's to bring consistency. And with that comes kindness. There'll be disagreements, but respond to each other with love and grace. It's okay to be different. Final thing I'll uh, add is, so what do you do with this after you've done that and you have questions? I want you to know that it's important for you to ask questions, to ask things that you are concerned about or upset about. And the elders want to talk to you about anything that you have a question about, whether it's this or something else, an area where we, you feel like you need to, to, to meet with us and speak with us. We're available. Please reach out to us at elders at efree.org and we'll get some time with you to deal with this or any other issue that you'd like to talk about. Adam, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Those are very wise words, and I just want to let you know that the paper is on the website at efree.org slash beliefs. You can go read it there. And, and I want to reiterate something that Jeff said there, that we're talking about a secondary issue and a church practice issue that we want to be consistent on and explain our rationale for why. What we are not saying is if you hold to a different position, you need to get out of our church. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that for the sake of consistency and lack of confusion, lack of frustration and freedom to know where exactly do we think those lines are that scripture establishes, here is a paper that outlines it clearly that we can now use as kind of a reference point for us moving forward. But we do want to maintain unity in the body of Christ, even where we may have disagreements. I know we're going long, but we don't have a closing song today. We do have communion today, the Lord's Supper. And we've been wrestling lately with what to do because we, we have found that on many Sundays where we do communion, we have too many people to have the blocked off rows so that we can have our servers go through the row and serve you communion. Um, but in talking with different people, uh, we didn't feel we were ready yet to have people passing trays through. And so that creates a bit of a conundrum. How do we do communion when we often have too many people for us to walk through the rows, but we're not comfortable yet passing trays with everybody touching the tray and then touching the cup and then putting it in their mouth and all of those things. And so um, together, a lot of us kind of came up with a solution, which is we're going to have communion stations today. This is not unlike what we do every Good Friday when we do communion by intention. It's very, very similar to that. The only difference is we're not all going to be dipping our fingers into one cup, right? So it's going to be separate cups. We're trying to be very careful about that and yet still honor the Lord's Supper that we want to take together. I got to warn you, it's going to feel a little bit different. And we talked last week about how sometimes we confuse, when we get used to something a certain way, we confuse the discomfort of different with something being spiritually wrong. Let me say that again. Sometimes when we're used to something being done a certain way, we confuse the discomfort of differentness with something being spiritually or even relationally wrong. There are many churches that do it this way every time they have communion, and to them that's normal. And if they were suddenly to pass trays, they would feel like this is weird, right? So for you, this may feel a little bit weird, honestly. I, I want to invite you to lean into the opportunity to allow the differentness to draw you back to what we're really doing it for, the real purpose for it. And we may not do it this way next month. This is an experiment. We have some ideas on how to tweak things for next month already. But just for today, what I want to encourage you to do is take a moment and reflect as the music plays. Uh, search your heart. And then when you're ready, go to one of the stations, either here or in the balcony or at the back there. We have many different stations you can go to. Pause and take the bread. Think about the body that was broken for you. Pause and take the cup. Think about the blood that was shed for you. This will be as special and sacred and sincere as you make it, even though it is different. 
Uh, if, you, if you don't want to take communion today, you certainly don't have to. You can just leave and go out one of the doors that, that doesn't have a station by it, and that is fine. Just as you're doing this, remember the reason why we do it. And, and regardless of the method, remember why we do this, because of what Jesus did for us. And let me just read to you from Mark 14 so that you can remember. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. Heavenly Father, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. And this practice of communion, we, we all the time do it differently than how you did it and how the early church did it in homes. So we, we're already used to doing it in a different way, Lord, but sometimes we get so accustomed to that. Help us in this moment where we're changing it a little bit just for this week to try this. Um, help us to focus on what it means and what you did for us, on the specialness of the God of the universe coming to live as a human and dying for us and giving of your life so that we can be free from sin. And maybe just the process of getting up and walking to a station and, and taking the bread and taking the cup and maybe the, the prayer time as we're going through that can just sort of jog our hearts to what you want this practice to be, which is something that brings us back to your sacrifice, helps us to remember it so that we never forget it. We never take it for granted. We live differently tomorrow through Saturday because of what we're doing today and remembering how you died for us, Lord. Let us live that out in our lives every day. Thank you for what you did in your sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.